Hey there, history fans. Welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. And on today's episode, we are continuing our guest episode, and it is all on the Italian Renaissance. Woo! Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'm back. <laughs> I thought you guys were going to introduce me. Thank well, you. No, guys. she was supposed to. Thank you so much for having me back. This is Casey Jump. I'm very much looking forward to getting into the Italian Renaissance. Yay. We're <laughs> going to talk majorly about the Italian Renaissance and its influence, the influence it had on the rest of Europe, because that also influenced my Casey. Shakespeare. Yeah. My main man. <laughs> I have a crush. Don't judge me. Too late. <laughs> Everyone says that. I'm like, it's too late. I've already known you for a while. Too late. <laughs> You've been judged. <laughs> but no, this is officially our first episode after our computer hiccup. First full episode. And we're so glad y'all stayed with us. Thank you so much. And we're going to jump right on in. Woo-hoo. Let's do it. Woo! Go, Melissa. Yay, me. <laughs> <laughs> How unprepared can we be today? I have a feeling we're going to be laughing through this whole episode. Probably. Not I mean, really intending to. If we're not having, having fun, if we're having a lecture, I'm not sure what I'm doing here. What happened to all your notes? I got them. They're right in front of me. Go! (laughs) (laughs) So before I get into the Italian Renaissance specifically, I just want to talk about the medieval period and how it relates to the emergence of the Renaissance. So the height of the medieval period can be seen as between 1100 and 1300, with the 12th and 13th centuries themselves being the most prosperous, typically in trade, religion, and population. However, it begins to collapse in the 14th century, so we know the 1300s, which was a period of unparalleled disasters, mostly famine and disease, because about halfway through, about 1348, 1350s, when the Black Death first arrives. And in fact, it is believed that it first arrived in 1348 on the Sicilian merchant ships, and by 1350, within two years, it had spread rapidly through all of Europe. And by the end of the century, it had decimated possibly up to half of Europe's population, between a quarter to a half or the normal numbers that you see. And it had an absolute devastating effect on the economy. So you had obviously a loss of population, which led to a collapse in demands for goods and a loss of manufacturing and trade as well, too. It completely came to a halt. And with this, many serfs were themselves dying, food production was declined, which led to the nobles and the kings taxing people, overtaxing them, actually, to the point that the serfs were affected by this. And then we do have the peasants revolt around this time as well, too, which unfortunately did not go very well. But it was an attempt to get better working conditions and better pay. In fact, also at this time, you also have a schism in the church. In the 1300s, you have the Roman Catholic Church having their great schism. So in around 1309, the French king pressures the Pope to move the papacy to Avignon in France. Eventually, it was moved back to Rome. But at this time, you have the, the time of the two popes. And actually, at one point, you have the time of three popes. So things get very, very confusing. And then other crises that took place because you've got spiritual divides, you've got famine and society issues and disease and populations just being decimated. Many people felt that the society was old, exhausted and dying, which it was, and caused a whole ton of pessimism around the time. There's a dance of death motif that is very common a lot of paintings around this time which is the dancing skeleton motifs and also as i said a loss of spiritual leadership which met let people made people very anxious and uncertain 
And some people thought it was literally the end of days because everything was sort of coming down on them all at once. But Italy was a bit different. So the northern states of Italy, unlike the rest of Europe, unlike the rest of Europe, instead of dwelling on the disasters of plague and famine, they just decided that they would build a whole new culture to replace the old one and began to look backwards towards ancient Greece and ancient Rome, which they viewed as a golden age of man, a, a very prosperous era of learning and trade and money and things like that. So they actually decided to create an entire new educational system as well. And with this, first they stressed that recovery and rereading of ancient Greek and Roman writings were necessary, which became the humanist movement. So medieval scholars or intellectuals were mostly guided by the teachings of the ancients, so ancient Roman philosophers, ancient Greek philosophers, but they were manipulated to serve uh, Catholic theology, where in this case, they're just going back to the original source and not remodeling it to fit their religion. And then the Renaissance intellectuals also wanted to base their system on the liberal arts. So instead of just specifically theology and scholasticism based on the church, they're now going to be, we're going to talk about law, medicine, arts, study of Greek and Latin, history, public speaking, literature, philosophy, and politics, so that everyone would be able to bring something to the table to sort of better the community overall, rather than just have the abbeys and the monks and the bishops and everyone else telling you what to do. Everyone now has a piece of the pie, sort of. And of course, being Italy, you don't have to go very far to see a lot of the influence that created their cultures up to that point, because there's still, even today, a whole lot of ruins of ancient Greece and Rome in those areas. So this mostly started the early Renaissance, early humanist movement started because the Byzantines, uh, their scholars, they were during the time of the Ottoman conquest decided that they would move all the treasures that they had, the works in their libraries of Cicero and Livy and, and the philosophers and stuff, and move them over to Italy, which they in turn came to Florence so that they didn't fall to Ottoman hands. And then also with the invention of the printing press in the 1400s, also allowed this information to be very, to, to be spread quickly and also in the common language of the people rather than just in Latin. So the question becomes, why did Northern Italy specifically become the birthplace of the Renaissance? First, Northern Italy had a higher concentration of cities than any other location in Europe. So we have Florence, Milan, Rome, Venice, Genoa, Pisa, Padua, Bologna, Verona, a variety. There's all within proximity to each other. So you've got 30% of the Northern Italians lived in cities where at the same time, 15% of the rest of Europe lived in cities. So it's a lot crowded, which does kind of have a lot of issues though, when you have the plague coming in because everyone's crowded together, but at the same time, it works in their favor too. So the number two point is that one third of the population were the upper middle classes. They're known as the Pablo Grosso or the fat people. And they had a very disposable income and were generally very well educated. And the wealthiest of these Pueblo Grosso families were the nobles, cardinals, bishops, bankers, and merchants, as we will see. And the bottom two-thirds of the population were the Pueblo Minuto, or the little people. And these were your craftsmen, your artisans, your carpenters, masons, butchers, bakers, etc. But because you had a lot of wealth concentrated in this one area, it was also considered to be one of the wealthiest geographic locations in all of Europe as well too and being where it is in its location made it immensely popular for trade because you have trade coming in from one side of the Mediterranean through Italy up into Europe and vice versa. Genoa and Venice were major shipping routes, Florence and Milan were major cities for manufacturing and distribution so there's a lot of wealth growing on and I will get into the Florence in just a minute. And then the fourth point, as we said, the Roman ruins still dominated the landscape at this time as well, too. And so, as we said, the humanist movement that was starting to emerge believed that the classical times were the height of humanity. So they looked towards them for their inspiration. 
Now, Florence is considered to be the birthplace of the Italian Renaissance. Florence is amazing. I do love Florence. Although Florence had political strife in the Middle Ages, it did prosper economically. And the florin, as I mentioned before, so florin was the major main currency of, of Florence, florin and Florence. And it was actually introduced in 1252 and it was completely made of gold. And because it was made of gold and because it was a very common currency, it actually spread past the city's borders and became one of the most common currencies in all of Europe at the time. And in fact, it didn't even have a major change to its style for almost 300 years. So it was incredibly stable, unlike a lot of other currencies in Europe at that time. So you could definitely gain a lot of wealth by particularly being a banker. And we'll get into that too. And in fact, I believe it was the Medici's. So they, they were the prominent banking family at the time. And in fact, they were one of the first banking families to branch outside, not only just to Florence into the rest of Italy, but also into Europe which was a very uncommon thing to do, which of course allowed for a lot more trade and allowed for a lot more wealth. And technically, even though they weren't really ruled by a king, Florence was technically ruled by the Medicis during, particularly during the 1400s. That's another time we'll get into that too. So by the beginning of the Renaissance, early 1400s or so, it's estimated that Florence had around 80,000 to 100,000 people in population. It also played a haven to great thinkers and artists at the time, which allowed Florence to become a city where thoughts in art and manufacturing and inventions and new ideas were able to flow freely. Also because you were having a lot of these the nobles and the wealthy and these bankers, and they are taking the money that they have and putting it back into the community to allow patronage for these arts. So it allows, again, a lot of people to participate in the growing of their community. And additionally, Florence also became the location of the first public library known since ancient times, which is a really big deal. And people flocked to Florence because of all the patronage as well too. And so you have Francesco Petrarch, who's a scholar, a poet, and one of the early humanists. And he actually uncovered the work of Cicero and Livy while he was visiting Verona, which is not too far away, in 1345. And is actually credited as being the first person to propose the humanist education and replacing the monastic education from the previous centuries. He's also known as the father of the Renaissance. All right, so the next section that we're moving on to is I'm going to be discussing the major cities of the Italian Renaissance. Uh, just to preface this, I have been to a lot of these cities. Spoiled lucky me. All right, so we're going to begin with Venice. Art on water, as my teacher used to describe it to me, and it truly is a work of art. It is one of my favorite cities. Sorry. Oh, yes. So Venice. Port town, center of commerce, lots of markets, trading. So Venice being semi-isolated from mainland Italy, they were able to avoid becoming entangled in the politics of the rest of the country, which is pretty cool. This allowed them to be freer in their thinking as they often were able to resist papal decrees and policies. Furthermore, this allowed the city to be filled with philosophers and artists that may have not been able to have the freedom to practice art elsewhere. In fact, the Inquisition was forbidden to operate in Venice. So cool. And its territories. And there'll be more on the Inquisition later from Lawrence, so stay tuned for that. In addition, it became the commercial center of the country, which helped to bring about prosperity to Italy during the Renaissance. In fact, it is written... The trade of Venice helped to create the prosperity that was essential for the Renaissance. The Serene Republic and its fleet of trading ships allowed Italian states to export their wares and products. Not only did the city grow wealthy, but it greatly boosted the economy of other Italian republics. This very prosperity allowed the nobility and the rich merchants to become patrons of new and upcoming artists such as the hip and cool Michelangelo. <laughs> Moving on, Verona. 
it's a city that is 75 miles west of Venice, and it was an independent commune in the 12th century. It was a major city during the rivalry between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, which is essentially the paper part, papal party <clears throat> versus the imperial party. The city began to prosper under the Della Scala family when Mastina de Scala became the chief magistrate in 1260. And it is during the reign of Bartolomeo, sorry, that Romeo and Juliet is set and believed to have happened. There are actually attractions there called the Tomb of Juliet, the House of Romeo and Juliet, which I've seen. They're so cool. If you are in the area, drop by. It is so worth it. You won't regret it. Two great architects in the Renaissance came from Verona, Friar Giocono and Michelle San Michele, <clears throat> as well as the famous painter Paolo Cagliari, a.k.a. Paul Bernese whose famous painting was the martyrdom of St. George, going on to Rome, Groma. <laughs> Rome had its renaissance in the early 1400s, with the papacy, with the exception of the 1300s, being based in Rome. The renaissance passed through several different popes in the period of the 14 to 1500s. During the reign of Martin V, who became Pope in 1417, many prominent artists in Rome rose in popularity. And one of these was Donatello, who traveled to Rome to study classical art and excavate its ruins. During the reign of Pope Eugene IV, a commission for new doors of St. Peter's Basilica were made by Antonio Avrolino, a.k.a. Filarte, in 1445. After the death of Eugene came Pope Nicholas V, who was best known for his collaborations with artist and architect Leon Battista Alberti. The most notable was Pius Sixtus IV, who began the construction on the Sistine Chapel, the ceiling of which was painted by the one and only Michelangelo from 1508 to 1512. And the final pope that was really influential for Rome in the Renaissance was Pope Leo X. He was born Giovanni di Lorenzo di Medici and was the son of Lorenzo de Medici. And he is also known for his patronage of Raphael. Milan. Throughout much of its history, Milan was in the middle of power struggles between warring states and the people. In 1774, the city had surrendered to Charlemagne. In the 11th in the 11th century, as it grew due to its location for trading, it was again caught up in conflicts between the surrounding cities and city-states. A significant change in Milan happened in 1277 when a noble ruling family, the Della Torre, were ousted from power by the Visconti, who ruled in the late 1400s. It was at this time, with the last of the Visconti having died, the Sforza family began their rule from 1450 to 1519. Under their rule, Milan became famous for their trade in silk and in wool. And as the city prospered, the Sforza were able to oversee the art and the architecture of places such as the Sforza Castle and the Holy Mary of Grace Church. And because of their links to the Medicis in Florence, the Sforza were able to commission da Vinci for his Last Supper, which was painted in 1490, and it is housed in that very church. It was commissioned not so much as a piece for the church itself, but actually as a piece for the Sforza Mausoleum, which the Sforza family used the church for. Padua. I loved learning about Padua, you guys. So some really interesting stuff here. During the Renaissance, particularly in the 1500s, Padua had become this major city for scientific research and observations in medicine and human anatomy. The University of Padua was founded in 1222, and it became so renowned that it was able to keep autonomy and religious tolerances. In 1405, Venice took control of Padua, but kept the university as a major education center for the Republic, which I love that they valued the university so much. Galileo taught mathematics at the university and spread his new quantitative method. So cool. William Harvey, who was first described 
um, who first described the human circulatory system was a student there. The thermometer was invented at the university by Professor Santorio Santorio in the 1500s when the dissections of human bodies were finally allowed. Andreas Vasilius would perform them in front of crowds of 500 people. He would even go on to write on the fabric of the human body in seven books, which featured illustrations by artists at Titan Studio. This, of course, was a bold move as Galene, who never dissected a human body, was known for his thoughts and his writings on the human body and medicine since the second century. The university also became home to the world's first um, permanent structure for public dissections, which was inside the Palazzo Bow, erected in 1595 next to the Hall of Medicine. The university is also home to the Botanical Gardens, founded in 1545. This allowed students to study botany and therapeutic power of plants. It is also here that many new plants were introduced, such as sunflowers, potatoes, sesame, jasmine, and lilac, all new to Italy. The garden is also known for introducing Europe to coffee. The first mention in Europe of coffee was in a text from the 1500s. The medicine medicine oh my gosh da, bear with me de medicina egitorium by prospero alpini the gardens director moving on to florence now melissa had already spoken on some of these facts about florence's influence on the renaissance florence known as the birthplace of the renaissance the local vernacular became the Italian language, the coin, the florin became the world monetary standard, and the explorer Amerigo Vespucci hailed from this great city. As the city became wealthy through trade in wool, the newly wealthy merchants dominated. They began to build massive gilded mansions, villas, and countrysides, and commissioned major construction projects such as cathedrals. There were often spirited competitions between the merchants to see who could build the grandest buildings and the finest pieces of arts. Just as the Sforza family ruled Milan, the Medicis ruled Florence beginning in 1397 with Giovanni de' Medici, who was a banker at the papal court. By the time he died in 1429, he had held nearly every political office in Florence at one point. His successor was his son, Cosimo de' Medici, who was schooled in the new principles of humanism. Cosimo was able to take his father's flourishing business and expand it throughout Europe. When Cosimo took over his father's fortune, it was around 180,000 florins. With this amount of prestige and wealth, he ruled Florence, even though he gave it an appearance of a democratic government. Throughout his life, he patronized huge construction products, which aided greatly in education, even established the, establishing the Platonic Academy for the study of ancient works. He supported artists such as da Vinci, Dante, Machiavelli, and Galileo. He was even influential in the Treaty of Lodi, 1454, in which it ended the wars between Florence, Milan, Venice, Rome, and Naples. It is believed by his death he had spent almost 600,000 florins on architecture, art, education, and more for the city. After the death of Cosimo came Piero di Cosimo de' Medici, and then Lorenzo, a.k.a. Magnifico, in 1469 to 1492. Lorenzo spent even more lavishly than his grandfather on the city and its people, <clears throat> which allowed even the lower class to enjoy a great level of protection and comfort, which I love. However, he was not as great at the family business, and soon Cosimo and the Medici family were forced out of Florence in 1494. And that's all I have on the Italian cities. Yay! Yay! Aren't the Medici's great? <laughs> yeah. Pure insanity. Medici's. <laughs> Medici! Well, if you're going to go for an Italian uh, family that's Pure insanity. I, I think you can do a little better than the Medici. <laughs> oh God, there's so many. Which one? Oh, the Borgias, of course. Oh, she's. That's a. That's a whole nother episode. Okay. <laughs> Looking forward to that one.
I'm going to be talking about life in the Italian Renaissance cities. Both Melissa and Casey have touched on this just a little bit, but here's some more detail. So just to kind of go off of the major city, which of course, as we said, was Florence, as Florence was, we believe, the starting point of the Italian Renaissance. There was a hierarchy in the city-states. It started with the nobles at the top, the merchants, the tradesmen, and at the bottom were the unskilled. Yes, that's what they were called, the unskilled. So the nobles controlled everything. I mean, they lived in estates outside the city walls and they owned land which had to be worked. They were the ones that had offices. They served in the military. And they were advisors to royal families and they were in politics and they were in, uh, are you ready for this one? They headed the banks. All the money was under them. There was actually a book called Guidelines to be a Proper Noble written by Baldassar Castiglione. Oh, sorry. I uh, gave you the wrong title. title. The book is the book of the courtier, courtier written by Baldassar Castiglione and they were guidelines to be a proper noble. And it was published in 1528. While the lovely nobles controlled the banks for a time they had a point of strife which were the merchants yes the merchants were not far behind the nobles when it came to wealth and power this mainly came from trading and banking so in order to control the wealth they made through trading they married into the noble families yeah and that's how they began to control the banks via marriage it was such a such a point of power when you married properly back then you want to marry above your station not below your station and then after these tradesmen were i mean sorry after the merchants were the tradesmen and the trade tradesmen were the ones who did a lot of the manual labor they were shopkeepers and craft workers kind of like you know you you want a suit of armor armor you're gonna go to a tradesman who specializes in metalworking because they're going to create you a really good piece of armor. And they mainly belong to guilds, which they the guilds would control regulations. They were the ones to set out rules and guidelines for quality uh, standards, kind of like a, a union today, just to give you an idea. They're very similar, but not exactly the same. And if you did not belong to a guild, you did not make money. You, you had to belong to a guild. And if you didn't follow the guild rules or guidelines, you were not a part of that guild anymore. And after the tradesmen were those that were considered the unskilled workers. And they're, of course, on the bottom of the working food chain. They had zero protection for their jobs, like the guilds would protect a tradesman's job. Unskilled, nope, you didn't have protection. And they completely depended on their employer. The unskilled workers actually did do better than the peasants. Peasants are the very, very, very bottom. They lived in the rural areas and the poorest of them worked on land owned by the nobles. So as I said earlier, these nobles who lived on these estates and owned lands outside the city walls had land that they needed to be worked. They went to the peasants and had them work. And these peasants were known as sharecroppers. A lot of them had a very difficult life and it was not known, not unknown for them to be starving. Well, that's Florence. Venice was similar, but not exactly the same. So Venice was considered a republic at the time. And the people played a large role and held more pow power than before when it was under one ruler. So I talked about Florence earlier. As it has been mentioned, the Medicis basically ruled Florence at, during this time period. There wasn't a single head family in the city of Venice. More so, it landed on, on the responsibility of the people of Venice. The hierarchy was still the same. Nobles, it, it came nobles, merchants, tradesmen, unskilled peasants, but there was no no one among the noble families who said, this is my city, I rule it, there's nothing you can do about it. 
people played more of a role in Venice than in Florence or Padua or Verona. And Padua and Verona are very similar to Florence. It's the same kind of hierarchy. We had different families like the Sforza and so on and so forth. So back to Melissa, back to Melissa. Next, we're going to go into the art, theater, and the festivals of the Italian Renaissance, which, as I go through, are going to sound very similar to Shakespeare, and you'll see why. So, as I mentioned before, the Italian Renaissance mostly started in the 1400s, and before that, it was pretty much everything related to the church. So, medieval art and paintings, particularly depicting religious and mythological themes, the humanist movement in their art focused more on the reality of everyday life and people. Although the Catholic Church did, of course, remain a major patron of the arts, many of these works were increasingly commissioned by the civil governments, courts, and the wealthy individuals. So Renaissance art can typically be classified into two different sections. One, early Renaissance art from 1401 to the 1490s, and two, high Renaissance art from the 1490s to 1527, which is when the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V decided he wanted to sack Rome. Fun. Some of the more prominent artists of the time would be Filippo Brunelleschi, who was an architect, architect, and he was inspired by the dome of the Pantheon to create the dome for the Florence Cathedral, aka the Duomo. And there was also Lorenzo Ghiberti, who actually won a competition to design the new set of bronze doors for the baptistry. And if anyone has not seen the overly sarcastic production series of Renaissance hygienes and the rivalry between Ghiberti and Brindleski, go watch that because it is incredibly hilarious. Another type of art that happened around this time that was a new invention was linear perspective, which is a technique of providing realistic depth to an image or perspective art as we know it today. And it's typically used by the use of angled lines and shadowing. And also another technique that happened at this time was called sfumato, which is vanished in Italian, where a painter would often soften the lines and blend paints to make an area look blurred. A very good example of this would be the Mona Lisa, where she's in the foreground and very clear, and the background is very blurred to give more of a depth perception to the look as well, too. And three masters of the high Renaissance art were, of course, Da Vinci, who pretty much specialized in everything. Michelangelo, who actually specialized in sculptures. However, he's mostly known for his Sistine Chapel. And Raphael, who specialized in paintings and is mostly noted for his, his most famous work would be the School of Athens, which he completed between 1508 and 1511. And the interesting thing is that, that all these artists and craftsmen came from all different levels of society. Typically, they would study as apprentices before being admitted to professional guilds. And then once admitted to the guilds, they would work on the masters to increase their crafts. And then from there, they would work on commissions from wealthy patrons, which in of itself means that it was a steady and reliable job. So it paid well and good hours, I guess. By 1485, Italian rulers began to finance various productions of ancient Roman plays and imitations of them. This led to various Roman plays being rewritten into Italian and inspiring various new types of plays. One of these was the Sophonisha by Gian Giorgio Tresino, and it was a neoclassical kind of a play. So the ideal neoclassical Renaissance plays were, I said, more realistic. They typically did not deal in the fantasy and supernatural elements of the medieval period. Staging was also made very popular at this time. Again, perspective architecture and paintings had come into play. And scenery was now used in different angles and forms to increase the illusion of perspective of the, the actors on stage relative to their scenery. Two major books were written at this time regarding theater. One is The Two Rules of Perspective Practice by Barozzi de Vignola and Manual for Constructing Theatrical Scenes and Machines by Niccolo Sabatini. And they also invented new ways of shifting scenery, such as creating wings and painted coverings on the side. If you recall from the first Shakespeare episode, they actually had a scenery that could be moved in and out of the wings because they were on pulleys. 
this originated in Italy here. So one type of theater that was incredibly popular at the time was the Commedia dell'arte, and these were high-level performances that would be over the top, and they would be over the top in the gestures of the actors, the costumes, the makeups, the, the masks, the scripts, and typically the two styles were improvisation in stock characters. One reason why it was so popular is you didn't necessarily have to know Italian to understand what was going on because, again, they're stock characters. So you know that the, the protagonist is probably going to be dressed in a certain way. The antagonist is going to be dressed in a certain way. The fool character might be dressed in a certain way. Your noble character is going to be dressed in a certain way. So you can gauge what is going on by the gestures in the costumes. You don't have to know the language to understand the play. And these were very colorful and extremely theatrical forms, which would typically facilitate a comic plot and arrive at a very humorous climax at the end. And they were also typically street theaters, which would then, of course, become stage theaters when more uh, stable theaters would be built. But they also would exaggerate features and complement that would complement the character's physical and acrobatic skills even too. So the type of theater itself, not the types of genres, but the theater itself began to influence Europe, which started in Italy. This was particularly with the proscenium arch playhouse. Proscenium means a structure in front of the stage that frames the action of the play, and it can be squared or arched with the stage curtain directly behind it. And one of the surviving theaters from this time in Italy, which is one of the few surviving, is the Teatro Olimpico in Vincenzo, which is a city between Milan and Venice. And it was actually created by architect Palladio, really cool architect, and was completed between 1580 and 1585 and designed for the Vincenzo Academia Olimpica and specifically built for these stage performances. And in fact, it was the first indoor theater that was made from masonry, so wood, stucco, and plaster, and is actually listed on the UNESCO World Heritage List, which is pretty darn cool. And if uh, there's a link in my show notes to go to their actual website, and it is gorgeous. So festivals, if you have seen movies or heard about the Venice festivals, you know kind of where I'm going with this. I would love to go to a Venice festival. It'd be amazing. So one major theme of Italian festivals were that they had a lot of dance in their ceremonies, very theatrical, a lot of movements, a lot of gestures. And it actually became a very important part as they believed it was a revival of the spectacles of ancient Rome. If you think, say, Bacchanalias or just major processions of Rome, where people were dressed up and a lot of parade-like things were going on. And in fact, Jacob Burkhart wrote that Italian festivals are in their best form, mark the point of transition from real life into the world of art. And if that's not a description of the Renaissance in a nutshell, I don't know what it is. So there were typically two types of festivals, the mystery and the ecclesiastical or the or processional. So the mysteries were dramatizations of sacred history and legends, and the processions were the classical ones. So mysteries were the most more popular and the more frequent, and typically favored by the progress of poetry and various other arts in the artists. And they would have typical characters that would represent love, chastity, death, or fame, and also depict characters from ancient Roman texts, such as Orpheus, Perseus, Andromeda, Ceres, Bacchus, Ariadne etc. And the genre of farce and pantomime also originated from these mysteries as well, too. And these were more, again, street theater. So these were like parade processions that would be started on the streets and soon became known as triantpo, or train of masked figures on foot. So again, a parade or a carnival, as I'll get to in just a second. So when the mysteries were performed, and they were performed for various reasons, such as marriages or celebrations, everybody was involved. Painters, sculptors, you know, decorators, you have people creating masks, everyone would participate in these. And they were typically held in public squares, churches, or even constructed scaffolding. In one instance, ecclesiastical procession, and you had scaffolding, the upper stories would be known as the paradise, and the ground level would be considered the eighth level. 
hell. And they typically started with dialogues that would take place between apostles, prophets, virtues, father of the church, typically would end in dances. At one festival, Brunelesco, created for the Feast of Annunciation, the Piazza San Felice, made an apparatus that actually consisted of, quote, heavenly globes surrounded by two circles of angels, out of which Gabriel flew down in a machine shaped like an almond. So these were elaborate. And another procession that was celebrating the arrival of the skull of St. Andrew coming from Greece was actually presided over by none other than Rodrigo Borgia, which does not surprise me in the least. So these festivals became increasingly extravagant, as I've mentioned. Uh, there was a festival in Siena in 1465, which saw a group of masked, 12 masked people emerge from a large golden wolf, which is an unusual thing to think of. And then there was a court wedding at one point where choral songs were sung. The fairest of Diana's nymphs flew over to Juno and Venus walked with the lion, which was really a man in costume. And in fact, Da Vinci even proceeded over one of these marriage processions as well. This was for a duke. And he even created something similar to Burlesco's Feast of Annunciation apparatus. And this one was heavenly bodies on a colossal scale but they were completely various mechanical movements. So when one of the planets would approach the Duke's bride, Isabella, a divinity would then step forward and sing her a poem, which was actually written by one of the court poets. So incredibly, incredibly elaborate. And these festivals weren't solely just for the streets. As we know, Venice is actually built on water. So when they held their processions, these would be on the canals. And there was a procession for Princess Ferrara, oh, sorry, of Ferrara, in 1491, where these were filled with garlands and hanging flowers and richly dressed youths and gods floated on machines and all, just a whole bunch of elaborate stuff, mostly for the nobles. And these festivals, which we now call Carnival, which actually originated in 1162 as a celebration, it is supposed that the origin of the word Carnival comes from ancient, from, comes from Latin, which means farewell to me. It's a carne. Carnival. So typically, Carnival is a massive procession. It's Mardi Gras, if you think of it, essentially, is Mardi Gras. It's what you, it's a big, elaborate fun that people would have prior to Lent, essentially. So you eat all your rich foods and your meats prior to Lent. And then during Lent, you give up whatever it is that you want to give up during Lent. The Venetian Carnival also has its origins in Saturnalia and the mystery cult of Dionysus. People would wear masks several weeks before Lent, indulging in parties, music, dances, the entire time wearing masks, which made it actually possible for their participants to hide their social status, which was kind of interesting, and was actually used as a time to even make fun of the social hierarchies and the aristocracy too. And then there were also often public exhibitions that were held indoors and outdoors, Parties would take place in various houses, in cafes, in theaters. There would be musicians, jugglers, acrobats, and dancers. But unfortunately, all things, all good things must come to an end. And by the time of Napoleon in the very late 17, early 1800s, he decided that he wanted to put a ban on any mask wearing for any reason whatsoever, because it's Napoleon and he was rather quite paranoid. And carnivals kind of fell out of favor. So it wasn't really until 1979 that it was decided to restore the Venetian carnivals and it had, has since become one of the world's most famous festivals. So we're now going to talk about the Italian Renaissance and its effect on Europe because boy, did it have an effect. Like it spread. The Italian Renaissance is what became known as the Renaissance because it spread throughout Europe. So as it has been noted before, the Renaissance started in Florence, Italy, in the 14th century. This was at the same time that exploration and trade were becoming an increasingly important factor and taking over more of the world, or Italy at this time, and it had a ripple effect on the world. The Italian Renaissance is what paved our path. It's what paved us, paved the path to the future for Europe, at least, and to get to where it is today. Are we still look back on that time and think, amazing. We still revere and admire people like Leonardo da Vinci 
Galileo, Michelangelo. These were all people that lived at this time and had an influence. The Renaissance took hold after a wave of the Black Death, aka the bubonic plague, hit Italy really rather hard. Bubonic plague brought with it a ton of death, illness, all of that. And with death means that the population of Italy was in decline. It was lower and that meant that at the time there was more wealth to go around. More people died, more wealth is left behind, more money to go around to the families that did survive. Even though it started in Florence, it did spread. It went to city-states such as Bologna, Milan, Venice. And in the 15th century, it crossed Italy's borders and spread throughout Europe, aka the Renaissance. Yes, it didn't happen immediately when it started in the 14th century. It took its time. So during this time period, there were, as we, as I said, a, there was an increase in exploration and trade, but also there was an increase in art. The art of the Renaissance, as I stated, is we look back on it today and it had a major influence, huge influence. There were artists such as Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and others who used classic stories as inspiration for their masterpieces. Michelangelo's Statue of David, for example. And we admire them to this day. You can also look at the Sistine Chapel as an example. And these artists studied art in a new way. They brought depth to it that hadn't been seen before. And they studied shading and the human body. They, they tried to perfect the human body in paintings and art and statues and all of that. So that, that had a huge effect. And as I said, Galileo existed to the, during this time. Science was a major factor, I guess, at this time. And we, we proved that the Earth was round instead of flat by Magellan. Uh, navigation was also big. So instead of using the stars, they started to use a whole new navigational system and a, and a shipping system. And this was also known because of how much discovery was occurring at this time, the age of discovery. As the continents of the Americas were discovered by Christopher Columbus. Yes, he didn't land on the U.S. of A land, but he did discover the Americas or the Car Caribbean is really where he lived. Am I correct in that, Melissa? Pretty sure it's the Caribbean, right? Yeah. I still hate using the word discovery for it. But yeah, that's where he landed. Yes, it's less of a discovery. Well, it's a discovery for Europeans. They hadn't figured out that it was there. So it was a discovery in a sense. It's just not a huge discovery as we like to think it is. Uh, Rene Descartes lived at this time and he is considered to be the father of modern philosophy. Melissa and I have also discussed the printing press in a previous episode. Well, this is the era it was created in. The printing press was created during the Renaissance. This led to plays and dramas uh, being widely spread because they would print it out on paper and it would spread, but also so did the Bible. This is also when architects, architects began to study mathematics in order to build a stage, stable structure building that was also appealing to the eye. I think that's pretty cool. I don't know about you. And oh, religion, we're gonna touch the touchy subject of religion. Religion was of course a hugely powerful force in the past and it was still powerful during the Renaissance, especially Roman Catholicism. Melissa was mentioning Roman Catholicism, Pope, Vatican, Avignon still played a huge effect. It was not only the most followed religion, it held a lot of power in life, in people's lives. However, when the Renaissance really began to take hold, this, it, it kind of changed everything. People actually began to question the religion more than they ever had before. And with the invention of the printing press, as I stated, more people had access to the Bible. So rules kind of began to slide, which is what allowed artists and, and authors and writers to express themselves more freely during this time period rather than following the strict rules of the Roman Catholic Church. Also, this was at the same time as the Protestant Reformation. Yeah, 
the Edict of Worms, anybody? Anybody? All I can think of is, we are worms. <laughs> that was horrible. That was perfect. <laughs> and yet it had nothing to do with what I meant. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, you might want to give people a clear meaning as to where that came from so that if they want to look it up, they can. Disney's Hercules. Yeah. If you, if you didn't know that, go back and rewatch Disney Hercules. Hades is awesome. <laughs> Great character. <laughs> I've not seen that movie in so long. I'm going to have to revisit it now. Well, Hades as a god was awesome too. But again, that's another episode. Stop getting us off track, Melissa. Sorry, we were talking about classical Greece and Rome. I thought it was appropriate. I mean, I guess. Okay, fine. <laughs> fine. But Martin Luther started the edict, started the Protestant Reformation and basically caused a split in the Catholic Church. And so began the sects of Christianity, such as Lutheranism and Protestantism, and they started to come into existence after this period. If you need help with that, Henry VIII, look that up. Anglican Church, there you go. The Italian Renaissance is guesstimated to have been around since 1380 and ended around 1550. Now, that's just the Italian Renaissance, not the Renaissance of Europe. So when the Italian Renaissance died, the Renaissance of Europe was still going. It had only really just started not that long before, maybe about 75 to 100 years pre that. And Italy's location for the beginning of the Renaissance is actually really important. If you look at a map, and you look at where Italy is in the Mediterranean and the trade routes of that period, Italy is the perfect location. It had tons of trade routes between the east and the west, tons of ports, as it was a, it's a peninsula. And they also used their own materials that they used for trade, especially things like clothing. And so they made a lot of money due to its location and its trade routes. And that money is what funded the great artists and scientists and explorers. That's how we funded the Renaissance is because of the Italian's location, the Italian's location. Wow. The location of Italy as a country on the map. And after the Americas were discovered, founded, became an integral part uh, of everyday life and trade, trade with Italy began to decline and the Italian economy began to suffer. Well, when the economy suffered, so did the support of the arts and the literature and the scientists and everyone else. And without that support, the Italian Renaissance as a movement began to decline. As I stated before, Martin Luther came into existence and started the Protestant Reformation. Well, the counter action to that by the Catholic Roman Catholic Church was the Counter-Reformation. Yes, we're so imaginative with the names here. Counter-Reformation. And this also had a bad effect on the Italian Renaissance. When the Reformation by Luther began to spread, the Roman Catholic Church responded in a rather negative way. By the way, at this time, we are considering the church the, the Roman Catholic Church's main location where the Pope was to be in the Vatican in Italy, okay? Not the Avignon, doesn't count. Protestantism would challenge Roman Catholicism and its teachings. And what the Roman Catholic Church did in response with the Counter-Reformation is they used what is known as the Inquisition to make sure that their rules and regulations were followed. Basically, the Inquisition kind of looked like a, worked like a police force as we know it today. Anyone who was caught talking, heard of, believing, or following Protestantism was arrested. You were also possibly tortured. This also meant that more restrictions were placed on artists and writers and scientists, and they were unable to express themselves without repercussions as they had before, which means things like, like the art of the time that portrays gods like Jupiter, Venus, Mars, all these gods, Roman gods, who are the equivalent of like Hades and Zeus and Hera and all of them, were, it, it was stopped. You didn't get that beautiful expression anymore because of the counter-reformation by the Catholic Church. Therefore, the Renaissance actually died out. 
or the Italian Renaissance. Let me rephrase that. I apologize. The Italian Renaissance died out. European Renaissance was still going. All right. Moving on to the final section of this episode, I'm going to be bringing it all back to my main man, Shakespeare. We're going to be speaking on the Italian influence on Shakespeare and his works. So it's believed that Shakespeare must have been to Italy because his plays are significantly set in many places in Italy. Most think that this would have been between the 1580s and 1590s in these so-called lost years, where we have just no reliable info on William's whereabouts. Although we can't know for certain that he traveled to Italy or that he even knew how to speak Italian, we can ascertain that he did come in contact with Italians in England, as well as people who had traveled there themselves and could tell him all about these Italian cities. We know that for a time he lived in Bishopsgate, which was an area where there was a huge population of immigrants from mainland Europe. It has even been theorized that he may have known the lexicographer or translator Giovanni Florio. And there were always traders, diplomats, tourists, travelers from Italy that he could have come in contact with during this time. There is an entry in the diary of Venetian ambassador, ambassador Giorgio Justinian, who wrote about seeing Pericles, which is one of Shakespeare's later plays. Giorgio also had a box at the Globe where he would host various visitors. So he was bound to come in contact with Shakespeare. In using Italy as a popular background, he was drawing on information and inspiration from this growing interest in the Italian Renaissance as the English Renaissance took place later. There were many books and pamphlets for those traveling to Italy that were actually available in England. And this had a major impression on many of the playwrights of the time, as many of the plays known in London can be traced to English translations of Italian plays or based on their translations. As we stated, the Renaissance had a major influence on the rest of Europe in the 15 and 1600s to include art, theater, poetry, literature, architecture, clothing, and much more. What we have termed Elizabethan verse, Shakespearean verse, is actually based on the poetry patterns from Italy, such as stanzas and sonnets. One of the most influential Italian poets was Petrarch who wrote his love poems for his unrequited love of Laura in Romeo and Juliet. Mercutio jests with Romeo for his love of Ro Rosaline and says, Laura to his lady was a kitchen wench. Mary, she had better love to be rhyme her. In using this line and other lines in other plays, Shakespeare is likely expecting his audience to know these references and that the, Ital that the Italians are well-known for their love of language and poetry. Some of his more famous plays can be traced back to Italian ones that he drew inspiration from. For instance, Taming of the Shrew is from Orosio's Il from Orosio's I Supposite, Romeo and Juliet, Luigi da Porto's Historia dei Due Nobili Marti from 1530, and from Arthur Burke's poem, The Tragical History of Romeo and Juliet, 1562. Othello was a novella by Giraldi Cinthio. Even in the plays that don't take place in Italy, there are references to the people and places and plots in Italy. So the Tempest, there are characters that are from Italy and have plans to make it back to Italy when they encounter prosperity Prospero, Storm, and Wreck. Although many in Elizabethan England may have not been to Sicily and therefore may not know much about that city or the culture, they are passively familiar with the revelry and carnival atmosphere that existed in, in Sicily. In Much Ado, Shakespeare uses the mass ball in Act Two as a scene for flirtation, comedy, and trickery. And this is likely drawing from the inspiration from the Commedia d'arte. He even uses the fact that Italy at the time was divided into city-states, each with their own regime and ethos. Romeo and 
Juliet go from Verona to Mantua. Two gentlemen of Verona move between Verona and Milan. In Much Ado, Claudio, being a Florentine himself, has different views and thoughts about how people behave and in turn misinterpret situations within the play. Depending on the style of plays, the city settings would be background information and it would provide background on the plot, um, playing more or less their own characters. Verona became associated with love. Padua, as we learned earlier, with learning and university, and Venice as a place of courtly intrigue. Although the names, pronunciations, the inspirations, the culture of Italy are present in his plays, they are very decidedly English influences. Had some of his plays been set in England with their courtly scandals, the intrigue, deception, and politics, he very likely would have been put into prison on charges of treason or, and or slander against the queen. So you can create cr plays with your own political views in it, but if you're smart and you set it outside of England, you run a less risk of enraging Queen Elizabeth. Even some of his histories aren't accurate as they paint some characters as more villain than they actually were, and others as more saintly and godly than they were. Elizabethan culture's idea of Italy at the time was this sunny land of entertaining conceits and commedia d'arte like devices, full of love, intrigues, and comic, if sometimes buffoonish going-ons, aka, for Shakespeare at least, in the comedies, Italy seems to be more summery and innocent destination, a place where nothing bad is likely to persist, writes Arthur Andrew Dickson. In other words, Italians were thought to be particularly passionate, charismatic, and devious, which made them the perfect characters for tragedies and for comedies. And its political situation as a fragmented nation of warring factions made it the perfect location for tales of courtly intrigue and tragic love. So, putting this full circle. Shakespeare took as much from the Italians as the Italians have since Shakespeare taken from him. The opera Otello by Verdi was written after he had read Shakespeare's play. Verona has capitalized on Shakespeare's settings in his plays. There is an attraction called Julia's Balcony, as we mentioned earlier, as well as her tomb, which are part of the city's top attractions. There are even Italian translations of his plays that are performed throughout Italy, notably in the cities that were cited in his plays. So that's all the information I have for today. Thank you. Gosh, it's the end of the episode. What? Already? I know. So you, if you'd like to send us any ideas or anything else, let us know what you think. We, you can reach us at historyexplainsall at gmail.com. That's our email. You can also find us at historyexplainsall underscore podcast at both Facebook and Instagram. Those are our websites. And we do have one more episode with our lovely guest, Casey. That will be our final episode with the within this series with Casey. Hopefully she'll be willing to come back again on another series episode guest series of course i'm so honored that you want me back i love it of course yeah, never mind i take back what i just said <laughs> oh ouch oh come on you know it's not real but you can't see what i'm doing you know what, what that's from <laughs> <Your friends. laughs> but that'll be all for today's episode and let's see thank you thank you casey and yes, thank you to our lovely guest, Casey. That'll be all for this episode of History Explains It All. And uh, don't forget that we still also have our mini-sodes that come out every other week that are not our full episodes. So we hope to see you next week, too. Yay! Yay! Whoop, whoop! <laughs> Late response. Bye, everybody! Bye! You can turn off the recording now. No. <laughs>